Well, hello, everyone, and hello to the Brentwood campus as we are continuing along in this series called Gospel Imagineers. And as we have been traveling through, we've been using this phrase. Maybe it's a phrase that you're not used to, or maybe if you've been listening in on this series, and we have our, all our other messages up on our YouTube channel, also on podcasts, so feel free to check those out. Um, but we are using this phrase, Gospel Imagineers, to describe people who've said yes to Jesus' call to follow him. Where Jesus says in Mark chapter 2, verse 14, come, follow me. And when you and I decide by faith to do that, we become um, people who need to reimagine the type of life we're called to live. We no longer are taking our cues from the world. We're no longer taking our cues from culture. We are now reimagining, we're rethinking everything about our lives. And what we've learned is that over the last few weeks, we need to think about our lives in new ways. We need to imagine them in new ways. The first week we talked about if you're going to be a gospel imagineer, it means you're going to be an apprentice of Jesus. An apprentice is one who's committed to learning the ways of Jesus and saying, Lord, teach me. I need to grow. I need to practice. I need to learn your ways. And so, so that's the first thing we, we discovered about being a gospel imagineer. The second week, we looked at this idea of being a pilgrim of Jesus, where we follow the way of Jesus, where we are people who have a destination that goes beyond this life. And we also, though, as we travel through this life, we travel with purpose, seeking to live out God's ways in every footstep that we take and knowing that he leads us. So... Again, that was the first two things that we're called to be. We're called to be apprentices. We're called to be pilgrims as we imagine what it means to really live out the gospel of Jesus Christ in our life. Well, today, on this weekend, we're looking at the third role that we're called to reimagine in our lives, and that is we're called to be storytellers. You know, as I think about um, storytelling... Um, I came across this quote. It says, tell me a fact and I'll learn. Tell me a truth and I'll believe. But tell me a story and it will live in my heart forever. Stories are so powerful, aren't they? You know, when we invite friends over for coffee or for a meal, guess what most of the evening is spent doing? We're just telling stories. We tell stories about our childhood. We tell stories about when we got, first got married. We tell stories about raising our kids. We tell stories about hoping our kids will move away at some point. I mean, we just tell stories. And, and, and those stories often, we, you know, we often start off with funny stories, right? Because they're the safest stories to tell. And then maybe if we get a little more trusting with the people that we're with, we may tell sad stories or challenging stories or stories where something wrong really happened to me and I'm really upset. But um, if we really are feeling trustworthy with the people around us, we will share the stories that touched us the most deeply, that touched our hearts, that shows our hopes, reveals our hurts, shows what we really believe, those are the stories we'll really tell. I just want to, as you're following along in the outline, um, you know, I just want us all to get this in our head that we are all created to be storytellers. We all are storytellers. We, we have stories that influence us that we may not even be aware of. 
Sometimes when I know I'm doing pastoral counseling with people, I'll, I'll ask them, I'll, I'll ask them to tell me a story about, you know, parts of their life. And sometimes I've had people say, you know, I, you know, I've never told anyone this before. The truth was, I don't think they've been telling themselves that story either for a long time. Because all of a sudden it reveals something. It helps them understand either what's going on in their life, makes them more aware, makes them more aware of what God may be doing. What we have to understand is that we all have stories that give us a frame of reference to life. Our stories are unique. They really are. They're different faces, different names, different places. We all have unique stories. Yet I would, I would want to contend with all of you that our stories all still have common themes. Um, my daughter, Megan, who has studied literature and drama, she was pointing out to me one day, she said, Dad, you know, really, she said, you know, all the great literature, all the great dramas of, throughout history really can be boiled down to seven major plot lines. I said, really? I mean, there's been, you know, millions of stories that have been told. And she said, yeah, really? She said, some may argue there might be 14 and some argue 32. But she says, people who study literature and drama realize there's really just these baseline baseline plots and themes that we all experience in life. So we're not all that different. You may say, well, what are some of those things? Well, let me tell you what some of those plot lines are. Overcoming the monster. Um, kind of like Star Wars, right? I'll, I'll use movie references to make the point here. Um, how about the quest? Um, like uh, Watership Down, if anyone remembers that movie. How about the journey and return theme? You know, like the Wizard of Oz, where they, they go away and then they come back. You know, a lot of our stories are like that. Uh, comedy. Um, like where there's misunderstanding or ignorance. And so a whole bunch of crazy circumstances come out of it. Like I think of the movie, Bridget Jones diary. Um, or, or, and then there's the classic one tragedy, right? Tragedy is when someone gives into their temptations of greed or avarice or lust or, you know, things like this. And because of that, their lives are destroyed, and you just watch the story unfold. And how many people do you know? That's their story. It's a tragic story. Um, there's, there's rebirth. Um, the hero is captured or oppressed and seems to be in a state of living death until all is lost or until they're freed. You know what a famous story of rebirth is? Now think Walt Disney. Snow White, right? She was asleep. She was reborn. Wonderful. Okay. Um, and then there's the classic one, rags to riches, right? Rags to riches. Some, some uh, you know, geeky little guy in a university back in the 70s. His name was Bill. His na he is now the richest man in the world. Rags to riches, okay? So, you know what? I just there. There's the seven major plot lines of all stories. And I would argue if you looked at all your stories, they're a combination of those plot lines. Now, I guess you could put, as I said, all those stories together. But what matters most is to really understand this. What stories in your life are truly important and are really true? You know, we have stories in our personal lives that are tragic, hopeful, evil, good. Stories that show our character and stories that show our lack of character. You know, we even have big stories that shape us. 
You know, it, it, it amazes me. I've had the opportunity over the last 10 years of my life to travel internationally. And you can see what I call the meta narratives when you go to another country, to another continent like Africa. You can, you can see how they have these large stories that they themselves don't even seem to be aware of. But you come in as an outsider, you go, can't you see that? You're allowing, you know, ethnicity and tribalism to define who you are and all the chaos and horrific suffering because of that. And yet what's funny, right, is we don't see that we have those same men and narratives in our world. Most of us here, maybe not all, but most of us are of European descent. And we too have our meta narratives of oppression, right? Of course, the English, you know, taking care of the French. Or what about even further back where all the Europeans came in and the First Nations people just didn't count anymore. They were to be used and manipulated and exploited, you know, conquer and divide. And, and now we own this culture, right? So we set the rules. And we don't even see it how that story has shaped us literally for hundreds of years. There are stories all around us. And what I want you to understand is that whatever story you're listening to inside your heart and mind are the stories that shape you. So what story shapes you? Maybe you grew up in a family where life was a battle. And everybody in this battle of life, the way your family would talk about neighbors and friends and family and work and school, it was always a battle, which meant there was winners and there were losers. And you wanted to always make sure you were a winner. And heaven forbid if you were a loser, because that didn't fit your family's story, because all your family was a winner. Or maybe you grew up where you were a victim of circumstances, I mean, absolutely unfair circumstances. You were overlooked, you were abused, you were, you know, vilified. And so for you, the way you're dealing with your story in life is to say, life's unfair, why bother, why try? And you sort of have this laissez-faire approach to life because it's your way of protecting yourself from any more pain. That's your story that really guides you. Or what about someone else who says, you know, my story is just trying to prove that I'm worthy, that I'm worthy of love, I'm worthy of respect. So everything I do, I'm going to show to you that I'm the best, I'm in front, I'm the winner. And these people with this type of, you know, making themselves worthy, they loathe making mistakes and they're always striving. Or how about this storyline? You're saying, you know, the only person you really can trust in this world is yourself. So you lean hard on yourself. And heaven forbid, again, if you ever let yourself down, you're in trouble. But that's your story. Your story shapes your life. If I were to ask you, what is your story right now that's shaping your life, what would you say? Seriously, what would you say? Maybe you've never thought about that question before. It's a good question to ask yourself. And often our story is rooted in our families and in our family history and in the culture around us. Now, now, here's the thing, though, that when we start reading the Bible, and this moves us to the, big, the next point, God interrupts our story with new stories. 
That when we, you come to a place like this and we start talking about what does it mean to have faith in God, I want to say God not only interrupts your story, he wants to interrupt it, he wants to change it, he wants to transform it, he wants to, in fact, give you new stories. Um, you know, I believe that one reason why God so desperately wants to interrupt our stories because so often, I don't care how good your story is, it still has lies to it. Your story still has brokenness to it. And God wants to interrupt it to really show you the, the new story, the story that can totally change you. Um, you know, I want to just turn to a story we find in John chapter 9. John chapter 9. And it's a great story because it's about um, Jesus who encounters a man who was born blind. And um, if, you, if you've got your Bibles, follow along, or if you want to look along on your smart tablet or smart device, feel free to do that as well. But I just want to walk you through this story just for a moment. So let's just go. As Jesus is walking along, starts in verse 1, he saw a man who'd been blind from birth. So what was this guy's story? I'm handicapped. I didn't get a fair shake at life. He would have been poor. He never would have had a chance to advance. That was his story. His story was one of unfairness. And now notice this, though, that the question comes in verse 2. Rabbi, his disciples asked him, why was this man born blind? Was it because of his own sins or his own parents' sins? Now, did you catch this question? That question shows a story. Because we all know some people really believe this story. You mess up, you get what you deserve. That's what, that's what happens. Good people who live good, who always succeed, life goes good for them. People who are bad, people who do wrong things, life will go bad for them. That's the story of their lives. So that's what they were asking. You know, was it because of his own sins or his parents' sins? Obviously, somebody messed up here. That's why this person's suffering. Do you have that type of story? Are you going through suffering right now saying, oh, God must be mad at me. Oh, my goodness. It must be because I was sinful. God's, gonna, God's getting me now. Is that your story? Well, I love this. Jesus now wants to start telling a new story. He starts in verse 3. It was not because of his sins or the parents' sins, Jesus answered. This happened so the power of God could be seen in him. We must quickly carry out the tasks assigned by the one who sent us. The night is coming that no one can work. But while I'm here in the world, I'm the light of the world. Now, there's a lot of story Jesus is telling there that's brand new. You know, I'm the light of the world. You know, I, I love this part. Like, the night is quickly coming here, so let's get done. You know, so often, I love this quote I heard. You know, we'll have all eternity to celebrate the trophies God allows us to achieve. We only have a few hours before sunset to acquire them. Got to get at it. So Jesus says, this is an opportunity to show God's power in this person's life. So then Jesus gets right to work. He, then, he, then he spit on the ground, made mud with saliva and spread the mud over the blind man's eyes. And he told him, go wash yourself in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. So the man went and washed and came back seeing. Now I got to admit, I, I, you know, so often Jesus would just speak a word and uh, heal in these other stories. But in this case, it says, you know, he made mud balls and put them over the guy's eyes. And maybe, you know, I, 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 we can speculate. Biblical scholars give different reasons why. I, I, sometimes I think Jesus would use sometimes different ways to help people experience the power of God in their lives. 
And for some, it was a very simple thing. For others, maybe this guy was a, what's called a, a, a tactile learner. He needed to feel something. So sure enough, he, he felt the mud on his eyes. Because think about it. He, he wouldn't see anything anyway. So he needed to feel something. So he felt, he felt Jesus' hands putting the mud on his eyes. And he says, now, now go to the pool of Siloam. Someone was leading him. And then he started washing his eyes. And all of a sudden he saw. Wow. Now, 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 I want you to catch what happens next because it gets kind of crazy at this point. I mean, just imagine, just imagine if there was a blind person here in our, in our church and we had a healing service and they saw before the end of the service. I mean, I don't know about you. I think we all be talking. I think we'd be sharing a new story. Well, here's what happens. Let's, 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 let's go on. Um, his neighbors and others who knew him as a blind beggar asked each other, isn't this the man who used to sit and beg? And some said he was, and others said, no, he just looks like him. But the beggar kept saying, yes, I'm the same one. Then they asked, who healed you? What happened? He told them, he told them the story, you notice this. The man they called Jesus made mud and spread over my eyes and told me to go to the pool of Siloam and wash yourself. So I went and I washed and now I can see. Where is he now, they asked. I don't know, he replied. I can't tell you everything. I just can tell you what happened to me. And, and that, by the way, is a neat thing when you think about faith. We don't have to know everything about Jesus. We don't have to know everything about the Bible. We don't have to know everything about God. We can just say, this is how God has inter interrupted my life. This is how God has changed my story. That's all you need to do. And then if you don't know something, you can say, I don't know. But why don't you come to Journey Church and you can journey with us and maybe you can find out. So then what happens next? Oh, I love this part. So first of all, there's like, you know, the crowd, the people, is this the right person? I can't believe it. Here's the story. Then we get to verse, the next thing. Oh, here come the re religious leaders. Oh, I love this. The religious leaders are so much more finessed in their doubt. Then they took the man who'd been blind to the Pharisees because it was on the Sabbath that Jesus made the mud and healed him. See, you don't do that on the Sabbath. And the Pharisees asked the man all about it. And so he told them, he put mud over my eyes and when I washed it away, I could see. And some of the Pharisees said, this man, Jesus, is not from God for he's working on the Sabbath. You don't heal on the Sabbath. And others said, but how can an ordinary sinner do such miraculous signs? And so there's a deep division of opinion among them. And then the Pharisees again questioned the man who'd been blind and demanded, what's your opinion about this man who healed you? And the man replied, well, I think he must be a prophet. I mean, what I knew, what, when I would go to the synagogue, when you would allow me to make my way in there as a blind, poor person, I remember you talking about the prophets. It sounded like this guy could be one of them. And the Jewish leader still refused to believe the man had been blind and could now see. So they called in his parents. They asked him, is this your son? Was he born blind? If so, how can he now see? And his parents replied, we know this is our son and that he was born blind, but we don't know how he can see or who healed him. Ask him. He's old enough to speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders who had announced that anyone saying Jesus was the Messiah would be expelled from the synagogue. And that's why they said, he's old enough, ask him. I mean, this is getting political now. This is getting dangerous, right? See, sometimes telling your story about how God has changed your life is going to stir things up. Telling your story is going to disrupt, disrupt other people's lives. It's going to force them to think different thoughts. It's going to have forced them to act in different ways. It's going to force them to think about different ways to believe. And often when you start pushing up against people's paradigms like that, I just want to tell you, it usually isn't a positive experience with some people. 
But you still got to tell the story. So, we, um, we then come to this last part. So, so they, for the second time, they called in the man who'd been blind and told him, God should get the glory for this because we know this man, Jesus, is a sinner. And then I just love how it ends. I don't know whether he is a sinner, the man replied, but I know this. I was blind, but now I can see. And that's my story, and that's the one I'm sticking to. Now, I want you to understand that when we talk about the journey of faith in Christ, we're talking about getting your story lined up with God's story. In fact, the whole story of God is about making our story part of his story. Here's a quote by, I love this quote by Leslie Newbigin. Listen to what he says. The answer to the question, who am I, can only be given if we ask, what is my story? And that can only be answered to the further question, what is the whole story of which my story is a part? Now, I want to read something from Starting Point. It's a course that we're offering this fall. We offered it last spring, but we're offering it again that lets you explore what faith in God is all about. But listen to what this whole idea about God's story and our story. God has a story too. For Christians, that story is recorded in a collection of documents called the Bible. Whether you know a great deal about the Bible or you've never read a word, chances are you've heard it referenced. Even the most non-religious cultural settings, it's common to hear comments about David and Goliath, the prodigal son, the golden rule. But these Bible snapshots do not tell the full story or even reveal the main point. One of the most interesting facts about the Bible is that it isn't one book meant to be read from start to finish. It is actually a collection of 66 separate documents written by different authors spanning hundreds of years with a single theme. The story of God's desire, here's the theme that runs from Genesis to Revelation. It's the story of God's desire to restore a relationship with humanity at an unimaginable cost to himself. In the account written of Jesus' life by the disciple John, we read the words of Jesus, for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. In that one sentence, Jesus summarizes the message of the entire Bible. It's a single thread tying the entire narrative together. It's a story of restoration of relationship motivated out of love and through profound sacrifice. So, in our reimagining of what it means to have faith in God, we are called to be storytellers. And storytellers share their new story. Do you see this story in the Gospel of John, this man born blind? He is saying, I was blind, but now I see. Jesus had made a difference in his life. He would never be the same again. Now, let me ask you, when Jesus really changes your life, do you have a story to share? Um... You know, I like how David Stone describes the importance of sharing our new stories. He says, the ability to tell your story is perhaps the most effective means of outreach to others. He says, because our culture craves real life stories. How else do you explain the success of reality TV? In fact, our need for stories downright physiological. Listen, we can't sleep without dreaming. And how do you dream? Do you dream in mathematical formulas? 
No, you dream in wild, crazy stories. Like, I'm running down the hallway and they're chasing me. And I can, you know, right? Um, and when you tuck your child or your grandchild into bed, what's the last thing they say to you? Tell me a story. They love stories. We all do. And Stone goes on to say, story is vital for spreading the good news of Jesus Christ. No one can refute your own personal story, your own personal experience. Yep, you know what? We live in a culture now in which Christianity is a minority in our culture. It really is. Oh, I know a lot of people say they're Christian, but when you really ask them what they really mean by that, we know genuine expression of Christianity is becoming a minority. And the truth is, is that they'll take shots at organized religion They'll mock and make fun of the size of a church. They can point out their own mistakes and failures. But when it comes to your own personal story, what you've experienced, guess what? No one can deny that that happened to you. You can say, this is how Jesus changes me. This is how I can have hope in him. This is how he is changing my story. Now, I've got a four-minute video that I want to play of someone from another culture in another continent. But I want you to listen and ask yourself, how did she let Jesus' story change her story? Now, it's quite heavy in the first part. So listen attentively, but listen to how, how her story unfolds. At a mass grave in eastern Burundi, Maggie Barankitsi remembers the unthinkable. It happened in 1993 at the Catholic bishop's residence where she worked. It's very hard. As ethnic violence exploded across the country, men with machetes invaded and unleashed a nightmare, separating ethnic Hutu people from ethnic Tutsis. They took off my clothes and then they tied me and they said, your punishment, that you keep silence. We will kill them in front of you. They began to kill priests, nuns, all the, the Hutu they know. When the bloodbath was over, 72 people were dead. And I stay alone among those bodies. I don't want to go. Over the following days, she risked her life to bury the victims. It, you can't imagine, I don't, 15 years after, I still wondering why, why? What do you do after something so horrific? For Maggie, the answer was extraordinary. I am Christian and I know that our human vocation is to love. I will try to, to make new generation Hutu and Tutsi together. As a war unfolded that would last 12 years and take 300,000 lives, she gathered orphans, dozens at first, then hundreds, then thousands as her own. I took those children with confidence because I believe that God is God. He will help me. Maggie established Maison Shalom, the house of peace, to restore these children. Her belief was that they needed education and love. 
and despite all they'd lost, a real home. So her children live not in orphanages, but in houses, caring for each other in small groups, living as a family. They have a future because it's their home. They have, when they leave school, they said, we go home. Throughout the war, they lived as a testament to peace. Maggie's children work together in businesses they own and run, including a salon, a tailor and seamstress shop, a mechanic school called the Garage of Angels, where former child soldiers, street children, and war orphans learn a skill and earn a living. Even their teacher is a child of Maison Shalom. I can't imagine what I would have become because of the war, but everything I am now is thanks to Maison Shalom. Over the years, Maggie added a library, language classes, computer lessons, and to prove to the children they deserved more than just survival, she built them a cinema and opened a swimming pool. Shalom was born to say no to the world, to say yes to the love, yes to the life. With Maggie, Maison Shalom is open to everyone so that healing, even in unspeakable circumstances, can truly take place. Reconciliation and forgiveness run deep at Maison Shalom, a place where Albert, a Hutu, and Mediatrice, a Tutsi, can grow up as brother and sister. God created us to be equal and not to be separated by ethnicity. So at Maison Shalom, we all live as children of God. Her work has touched more than 30,000 children. They rebuilt my heart. They give me hope. She is the living proof of what one person of faith can do to bring peace and hope to the world. Um, you know, when I, I see that, you know, it, it, it strikes me to ask these, a question and, and uh, make a statement here. But I want to flip it, if you notice in the outline. It, you know, when you hear God's stories, it will stir people's imagination. Now, we can't understand that context of what she went through. We simply can't. It was unbelievably horrific. The injustice was unimaginable. Ironically, did you notice it was the Tutsis now because they went to Burundi, which was south of Rwanda. Because remember, it was the Hutus who slaughtered the 800,000 to a million Tutsis. And so Tutsis decided to continue the story of violence and hate and power by going down and finding Hutus and killing them back. Revenge, the story of revenge. And we can look at all that and say, oh, I just can't believe that things go on. I wonder here in our little Atlantic Canada city called Moncton, where there are stories of revenge going on, where there are stories of power going on, where there's stories of, did, did you catch that? How they're trying to help the next generation have a new story and the new story is rooted in the gospel 
God created us and he created us equally. And, 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 and I'm sure if they were talking more, they'd say, and Jesus died for everyone. So there's no difference between a Tutsi and a Hutu. There's no difference between a Francophone and an Anglophone. There's no difference between an upper class person and a lower class person. There's no difference between First Nations people and the people in our rest of our society. There's no difference. Jesus died for us all. He wants us to love. Our vocation is to love, as she says. But that's a new story. That's a new story. So let me ask you this. Where does God need to interrupt your story right now? Where does he need to interrupt your story? Is, um, do you need to have your story, do you need to have a, your, a new imagination of what God wants to do? Does your story have to include trusting him more? Does your story mean looking to him to find healing? Or maybe your story now needs to say, God, I'm open to being led to serve. Or maybe it's saying, God, I need to encounter your presence in a more profound way. Or maybe it's saying, God, help me to be open so that your hand is working through me. Or maybe your story is just that you're going to share your hope in Christ, that you were blind and now you can see. Maybe your story is that you are going to become for the first time Instead of standing on the sidelines, you're going to become an instrument of peace. You know, when we grasp the story of why Jesus lived, died, and was resurrected, we now have the opportunity to discover how our stories connect to God's grand story. And it's through that connection that we start to find meaning and purpose in all of life's events. You see, our story has to include this. Because of Christ, I was blind, but now I see. This is my story. This is my song. Let's pray. Lord, um, we are all storytellers. When you interrupt our lives with the good news and the hope of Christ, Lord, help us to tell those stories. Help our our stories right now to continue to, to, to be shaped and new chapters to be added where we'll see the very hope and the peace of Christ. And we pray this in his name. Amen.